0: This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. Listeners, I could not be more stoked to share that my guest today is Michael Nachbar, the Executive Director of the Global Online Academy, otherwise known as GOA, which is a pioneering network of schools and educators reimagining learning to empower students and educators to thrive in a globally networked society. Michael was appointed the Executive Director of GOA in 2011, its inaugural year. Since 2011, he has collaborated with global educational institutions to develop a network of over 100 schools in more than 40 countries, enhancing access to quality online education worldwide. GOA is an international consortium of public independent charter and international member schools. Member school students have full access to GOA's online education course catalog. Member school teachers have the opportunity to design and teach student courses and have access to GOA's professional learning courses and programs. Prior to founding GOA, Michael served as Lakeside School's middle school assistant director. By the way, Lakeside is an independent school located in Seattle, Washington. And he worked in a variety of roles, including teacher, curriculum coordinator, and director of technology at the Village Community School in New York City. He holds a BA in both English and psychology from Indiana University and earned a master's in education leadership through the Klingston Center at Columbia University's Teachers College. Michael started his career in education as a Teach for America Corps member teaching high school English in Roma, Texas. He is an active board member for several education organizations, including the National Association of Independent Schools, the Independent School Association Network, and the JUMP Foundation. He serves on the advisory board for Sea change Mentoring. Previous boards include the Mastery Transcript Consortium and Summer Search. He lives in New York with his family. Young Zhao, one of the world's leading voices on reimagining education, said the following for this episode about the Global Online Academy Quote, GOA is an amazing innovation in education, pre, during, and after the COVID pandemic. It has created one of my dream institutions in education that enables teachers and students from traditional isolated schools to work together globally, which in essence removes the traditional boundaries of education, end quote. Emily McCarran, the executive head of school at Keystone Academy in Beijing, China, said the following about Michael for this episode, quote, Michael Nachbar is a brilliant educational thinker and leader. He is also a talented photographer and a great friend. He brings to his work the mischievous and curious mind of a middle schooler, which makes sense as he began his career as a middle school educator. Michael has a way of seeing the future of education with crystalline clarity, and he's able to help schools and educators draw lines between the present and the aspirational future that we hope for in all of our schools. Through his leadership of GOA, he has transformed the organization from a small online thought experiment to a globally networked superpower in the realm of educational futures and technology. He is smart, hilarious and brilliant and trusted by so many in the field to be a navigating voice that points towards a future schools' and kids' need." End quote. And now, here is my conversation with Michael Nachbar. Michael, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, Michael, one of the things our listeners need to know about you is that at the tender age of 17, you did a truly nutty, crazy thing, which is bike 3,600 miles across the entire United States of America with a group of nine other crazy teens. So one of my favorite podcasts is called Experience Matters, hosted by Steve Shapiro, And Steve would surmise that you are still carrying the memories, experiences, and challenges of that bike trip as you do your daily work at the Global Online Academy and really as you do, as you live your life. So if yes, if Steve is right, in what ways did this experience shape the Michael Nakbar I have come to know during my prep for today? Like how did the arc of your life change as a result of that bike journey?
1: starting with a little question. I like it.
0: <laughs> One of those arc of your life questions. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why not?
1: <laughs> you know, it's still to this day when I look back and think about the events that fundamentally changed who I am and shaped me that that is still the thing I come back to. So, I was 17, you know, I wasn't into team sports and in a big way, or really any way, I really enjoyed cycling. You know, where I grew up, a lot of kids went to camp and things like that. That wasn't really for me, and so that summer, I just I just wanted to ride my bike. Mm. <laughs> and so I started looking around, and I found this trip. And you know, they had a prerequisite, and you had to have done a trip before. And I had never done it, but I just liked riding, and they made a they let me go, and it was the hardest thing I had ever done, ever in my life. I can still tap into the pain I felt. (laughs) You know, we started in Seattle and we hit the Cascades within the first week. Mm. And I had never seen mountains like that in my life. And so it was humbling to the core. And, And I think at the end of it, when I look back and think about how it shaped me, the kid who left for that trip mm. was very different from the the kid who came back everyone around me saw it my sister even saw it right like i just was different and i think that if i were to summarize you know what that change was i think that i was very just kind of lean out i was not super engaged when i left like i was you know, I did school, I did the things I was supposed to do that were expected of me, Mm -hmm. but I was not as engaged as I was when I came back. I feel like at the end of it, I was leaning into Mm -hmm. life in a way that I wasn't previously. Mm -hmm. And I think still to this day, that informs who I am and and how I interact and engage with the world, Mm -hmm. even as a dad. Right as a dad with my kids, as an educator, it like really impacted the way that I structured my classroom. As a dad, it impacts the kinds of experiences I want my own children to have, and even you know with GOA, just thinking about the role that experiential education has on students informs the way that we teach and design learning experiences. So, I mean, there's really I can't. It's everything. It's mm. in the fabric of who I am, and, and I owe it all to that that challenge that I did.
0: Yeah, that's super cool, Michael. Although it happened to me when I was in my 30s, I did a a kind of a nutty thing on a bike as well. I did something called Ragbri, which is the Des Moines Register Great Annual Bike Ride across the state of Iowa, albeit it was only 600 miles and it was seven days. But that was a hugely transformative experience for me, and I really hear you about you know at the end of that i think i was a different person and there was a, a, we we weren't self-contained the way that you were carrying all of your equipment we did indulge in having a truck carry our tent to the next stop and all of that but i still just remember i think for me it was more about the people that i met and obviously you know 20,000 people riding across the state so in that way, that was what was transformative for me was just suddenly as a very introverted kid from Hawaii going to school in Iowa, that, that moment of meeting all those people and biking with all those people was huge. And so, you know, we come back to experience matters, right? It really does. And so, Michael, more than one person has mentioned to me your passion for photography. And I spent some time surfing your photos, which you post to Instagram, and I felt at times like I was having a humans of New York experience. There is one photo, Michael, of a lacrosse coach talking to his team in a stadium at dusk, which I found completely arresting. And so for a number of years, I too had a photography project on Instagram, which I I really loved curating. So how does your photography work help you see and read the world? And, And what competencies and skills have you developed in the area of photography that transfer over into your life as an education leader, a family member, a community member?
1: Oh, I love that. And that photo that you're talking about is really special because that is my son's lacrosse team. Mm. And the coach is just, he's amazing. And that was their last game. They got to play on the you know, the local varsity field. It was under the lights in, in the evening, and it was a big deal for them. And it was a really fun way for them to close out the season. They didn't win. And so he's talking to them about how well they played and being part of a team. And I like to give my photos as gifts to people. Mm. So I was able to, you know, print and and give him that as a, as a way to, you know, close out the season, which... Was really special to me Mm. because I I think capturing those moments of candor are really important. It's to me, it is about being in the moment and observing and capturing interactions between people that often go unnoticed. Mm. That's the kind of photography I love, that kind of documentary style, personal photography. Mm -hmm. So you know, I think that it helps me see. It actually brings back a memory of a book, No Child or Every Child Into the Woods, or I can, I'll look it up. Mm. But in it, he writes about the importance of like taking a moment to be in nature. Um, and he talks about um, this a child who, you know, a butterfly lands on their nose mm. and the importance of. Like being in the moment and observing that. And I I talked about that once at an opening session when I was working at Lakeside and offered it as advice to parents and guardians. The book, It's Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre. That was the book. Right. And I think that, you know, that idea of, you know, what it means in photography just to observe and then capture is similar to what it means to be an educator right? What it means to be a parent and guardian. And the way that we also want to teach our kids to move through the world is being engaged. And photography does that for me. Mm. I I can look at pictures from years ago, and that moment is still very real. I remember Mm. everything about it, everything surrounding it. In a way that I just don't recall things in other ways. It's just very rich in all of these different senses for me. So it really informs the way that that I I think about my relationships with people. Mm. In the present,
0: you know, my previous guest Carmen Coleman, who's a deeper learning sort of superhero in Kentucky talked about when I asked her what the definition of deeper learning is, she said very simply, for me, it's that which is remembered. And in a way, that's what you're saying, is that as you read the world, as you see the world, and you observe it through the lens of your your camera, whatever that camera is, in a sense, you're having something, an experiential moment that's quite deep. And because of that, you remember all of the details of it like that that photo that lacrosse photo right is that a fair way of looking at it
1: absolutely i love that connection
0: yeah and you know i had what happened to me Michael was you know because we share a love of biking i actually got grounded a few years ago because i was almost hit by a car and i, I flipped up near and i broke both my wrists so i'm fine now but I couldn't bike for more than a year and that forced me into long walks and that's when my Instagram art project took off because all of a sudden I was moving at a much slower pace and I was amazed on these long walks here in Hawaii where I, where I live at the things that I was seeing, you know, I just, I remember a lot of those photos very, very vividly and so that's really cool and it's so much a part of you and that's that's very special. So so Michael this might be a total stretch but for a hot minute you flirted with the idea of becoming a doctor specifically emergency medicine. <laughs> <laughs> and in my mind Michael there is a connection between your middle school rich resume and your interest in emergency medicine like middle school is kind of a day long emergency room experience right? as young people go through the craziest of our various human stages of development. So is this too much of a stretch, or spot on, or something between?
1: That's funny. So that bike trip, one of the neat things is when I started teaching, you know, I had summers free. And so I had always wanted to go back and work at that company that I had done my trip with when I was a kid. So. I did. I would lead these bike trips. They were one of the leaders in experiential education. They were one of the only bike companies accredited by the Association for Experiential Education. So they put a heavy focus on student leadership and leadership development and, you know, basically designing experiences for students to practice those skills, which was I didn't have the language back then to really know what it was that they were doing as far as, you know, developing competencies and things like that. But that is what they were doing. And it was it was amazing. So one of the parts of training for that was doing all these outdoor emergency medicine courses mm. and loved it. I love the hands-on nature of it. Like, Part of the training was you'd be learning something in a classroom and somebody would come in and they say, hey, there's an accident outside and you'd run outside. There would be, you know, actors and other people who had been taken out of the class and they would be, you know, laying on the ground in some kind of accident. You'd have to assess the situation. It was chaos, right? And it was putting you in this moment of... You know, your senses were heightened and your Mm. heart's racing, even though you know nobody's really hurt, but you still get swept up in the moment. Right. And I feel like that's middle school. (laughs) (laughs) That's middle school where, I mean, everything is so visceral in middle school and for middle schoolers. And so, yeah, I think there is a connection between those two things. It's a frenetic energy working with that age group that. I think you really have to be drawn to and it's got to drive you. And I think that's what I loved about the emergency medicine stuff. Mm. And I think that's what I love about middle school is like those kids in that age, God, it is so much fun. Mm. And having two of them at home right now, I know it's supposed to be, you know, the, the worst of years, but I just love watching them go through these developmental changes at this age, it is just, yeah.
0: You know, one of my previous guests, Chris Baum, is the author of a great book called Finding the Magic in Middle School. And I, I wonder, Michael, you know, given all of your experience, what what is that magic in middle school? Like, what do we educators, even if we're not middle school educators and we're possibly supporting middle school educators or, or coaching or mentoring or just being friends with, like, what is it that middle school educators need to do with their students to navigate that moment that you're describing? What's the secret sauce there in your mind, given your experience?
1: I forget where I read this, but the changes that middle schoolers are going through, like the changes in their brains, their bodies, the only time that humans go through that much change is in infancy. Mm. So it's like the first two years of their life match Developmentally, I mean, the developments aren't the same, but the magnitude of the changes and what's happening in their body are similar in middle school and in, in that age, you know, 12 to 15. Right. And I think it's important to remember that, right? Like knowing that these kids at that age are changing everything about the way that they interact and engage and view the world. And I think that, you know, it's really hard. You know, they don't know what's going on with them. Their friends are confusing to them. And I think it just takes a really high level of empathy to work with that age group. I think middle school teachers are amazing. And when they can create that safe place for kids to, you know, start going through those changes and the way that they are viewing the world is a really magical time. Mm. It's it's my nice age group that I've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know,
0: Michael, when I first started this podcast more than three years ago, I was never a middle school educator. I taught high school, but I was amazed at how quickly as I was interviewing middle school educators, I came to appreciate the work that they were doing, that it was just, it's such an extraordinary physical time for kids and including their brain development And I just got this really strong sense through all of these episodes that in some ways the secret sauce was actually working with that rather than trying to control it. That to me was, you know, kind of where the magic is. And I think that that's what you're alluding to. Okay. So Michael, one more question before we go to our first break. You shared with me the following, and I quote, One crazy awesome moment that I look back on with fondness was the opportunity to co-teach a math class because the school was undergoing construction and we needed to combine classrooms. So Anna, my co-teacher, was a true mathematician while I was the pedagogue, And the way we taught together was like this incredible dance. It was amazing, end quote. So what was this incredible dance, Michael? What did you bring to the table? What did she bring to the table? And how did this dance impact your combined students. I'm just wondering if you can allow us to be observers looking historically into this moment and what made it amazing.
1: Sure. So I was not a math teacher. I mean, I started teaching high school English with Teach for America and then moved into middle school and knew I could teach sixth grade math. Just I knew that I could break it down and you know, with support from my colleagues and, you know, designing the scope and sequence of the course, but working with the students in, in the class was really, you know, that was what I loved. And I think one of my strengths. So when Anna and I started working together, she showed me this side of the math, the concepts that, I mean, they were so deep. And she was... Just such a math scholar, and we're talking sixth grade math. So, mm. you know, really like like diving into the why things were functioning the way that they were functioning. And so, when she and I started teaching together, I think one of the things that you would have seen was there was a deep respect. It was almost like like an improv skit, right? Mm. Where like what what did what is it with the first rule of improv is you you never contradict the other person right you, everything is yes and i feel like she and i just danced in that way that we just kind of moved in and out observing each other in the way that we were working with students and so you know even if there was a student who needed like clear explanation of the basics, you know, that might be a great student for me to work with. But, you know, a student who needed to, you know, dive deeper into the work might be somebody that she was working with. Or there was just always a, you know, if somebody had a new idea, there was a a freedom to, to try it, right? And that you would get support from the other person. And we had a, you know, huge class. I think we had like 45 kids in the room. Wow. And just she and I, and and it was, yeah, still to this day, it is probably one of the most impactful teaching moments I've ever had. Mm. Just co-teaching with someone like that, or somebody that you deeply respect, and there's that mutual admiration, can be a really fun experience. Mm. You know, one of the things that really struck me about what you
0: shared with me, Michael, is that... Anna was the mathematician and I've been thinking a lot lately about this. I mean it was it was a theme for me when I was a teacher. I taught history and economics, wine studies. For me, it was all about not filling the kids up with history information, but helping them to understand what it means to be the historian. And I wonder what you observed with Anna, albeit at the sixth grade level, of what it meant to be the mathematician versus just teaching math. I wonder if that if that was something that happened during the magic.
1: Yeah, I think that to me, what you just said should almost be one of the competencies that every class is trying to imbue their students with or create an environment where they can practice that, right? Right. How do you think like a mathematician? How do you think like a psychologist? How do you think like a historian? So I think for that class one of the ways that we did that was letting kids struggle with concepts. And and this is where I think she was such an artist with math was that together where I was really good at the curriculum development, that we were able to put that together to design activities that got kids like diving into the concepts mm-hmm. behind the numbers, right? So when we were doing... Percents, we went down the rabbit hole of teaching kids like base 10. And then part of the curriculum for some of the students was studying Mayan civilization in their history class, Mm. which was a, a base five math system. And so we taught them base numbers, like that wasn't part of the curriculum. But her knowing that and then combining it, we were able to create this project for the students to start to like disassemble base number systems so that they could recreate it in other places. It was, that to me is thinking like a mathematician. And that was super fun. And it was fun to make it, you know, cross it over with other disciplines. And it was hard, right? Like getting your head around at that age around base number systems was not easy for everybody. Right. And kids got to play with math.
0: Yeah. That's awesome, Michael. I mean the greatest experience of my 17 years in the classroom was when I team taught a what was called a contemporary issues class. I think previously it was thought of as sort of a current events class. <laughs> but the guy that I team taught it with, we transformed it into something that we called contemporary issues. And what we were out to do was to help train the kids to be policymakers. And so we we inserted them into these wicked hypotheticals, these simulations, and it was just magic watching them struggle through the process of learning to make policy just in the same way that your students were struggling to figure out how to be a mathematician, to struggle through mathematical concepts. And that's the kind of thing, Michael, that just gives me goosebumps. It's like, that's what education could be, right? <laughs> so. That's awesome, that's an awesome story. So, hey everyone, we are speaking with Michael Nachbar, the Executive Director of the Global Online Academy. Stay with us, we will be right back. Hi, fellow educators, I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner, to recent high school graduates, about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from Ed. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to
0: support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School
1: Could Be Educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the
0: Ed Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Michael Nagbar, Executive Director of the Global Online Academy, a global consortium of independent, public, and charter schools that provides classes for students, professional development for teachers, and an international network of peers for school communities. So Michael, before we get into elements of the Global Online Academy, I want to tap into your interest in making predictions. I read all your blogs and all of your predictions, and it was really fascinating, Michael, to read some of the things that you'd written before the pandemic, which is really cool because obviously now a lot of things have changed. So anyway, my nephew, Evan Beachy, works in the Strategy and Transformation Division at Kamehameha Schools which has three campuses on three Hawaiian islands that serve over 7,000 students. And by the way, KS is also a GOA member. So Evan recently presented a slide deck about the future of education and education funding to some philanthropists in Hawaii. In the deck, he made some predictions, which I would love to run by you for your reaction. So let's make this a lightning round where I share each prediction and you briefly evaluate it. So, by the way, Evan's predictions were drawn from two conferences he attended this spring of 2023, one of which was South by Southwest EDU. All right, so here we go. Number one. So, Michael, Evan argues that an emphasis on competencies and career pathways and artificial intelligence will push a transformation in what college is and means to Americans. What are your
1: thoughts? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> like I think at this point we've been talking a, a lot about some of these things for a really long time, right? We've been talking about competencies and how that will change the face of of education, you know, K12 education and and in turn will drive changes in you know, college and career. And I think it. I think it's just going to be slower and more gradual than we think. I think AI, for sure, is going to change the equation, but I'm not so sure about which direction it's going to change it in. You know, there's part of me that worries that with the rise of AI, you know, the essay for college admissions is dead. Yeah. And what does that mean? Right. that worries me like does that mean that colleges are going to go back to standardized testing yeah. in, a, in a heavy way right how are we going to you know meet that moment and so i think in the past i've been pretty heavy on the role and impact of cbl i think there was hopeful and i think we should stay hopeful because i think that competency based learning is very important and we should be aligning ourselves to that and and doing more of that in our schools. But as a prediction that it's going to fundamentally change the way that we think about college admission or, or you know, college pathways and career pathways, I'm hopeful I think it's going to be more gradual than acute. Mm, got
0: it. Okay. So number two, Evan predicts that place, culture, narrative, and identity will increase in economic value, which means that education writ large will shift dramatically, possibly, towards these ideas. What do you think?
1: I love that. I love that idea. You know, I think a lot about the society that we live in and how divisive so much of our conversations have become. Mm -hmm. It's what's modeled on TV. It's, you know, it's People aren't aren't talking to any each other anymore. Like it's it, almost impossible to, you know, debate somebody about something without it turning and feeling personal. And so, I think understanding and taking the time to know people is really important. I, I think that for me, that's one of the things about GOA classes where we have students from all over the world that we try to, you know, create as part of that learning experience, which is where you're from and who you are should inform the conversation with your peers so that we can learn from your perspectives and even take your perspective to better understand it. Even though we may not adopt it, we can still try to stand in your shoes and see things from a different a different way. So I love that. I think, and and I think too that people's personal stories are going to be very important this goes back to that first question even around college admissions right the importance for students to tell their story and who they are and why that's important and where they see themselves in the world i think those are definitely Mm. going to be growing importance uh this year for sure for sure Mm. love that one
0: Yeah, and and it appears that, you know, post the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision, there will be a multiplicity of ways that students can actually tell their story, and it's up to us to help guide and coach and mentor them as, as they do that. So, yeah, agreed. Okay, so number three, I'm going to combine two of Evan's predictions into one. So he argues that artificial intelligence, gaming, and stealth assessment, which by definition is the opposite of a discrete moment when you take a test, that stealth assessment is everything that's going on under the surface constantly where assessment is happening, will seriously disrupt the infrastructure of education and where and when traditional content knowledge acquisition happens it will be done by technology and AI. So I know you've been thinking about this a lot. So what are your thoughts, Michael?
1: You know, it's funny. I, you know, I started one of the other roles I had in my career was as a director of technology, and I kind of grew into that because I was the, always the teacher in the classroom who is who is game to try, you know, the crazy ideas that somebody in the tech department had. Right. Like I was yeah. the teacher that did the Palm Pilot Pilot program and got super excited because we figured out how to wireless wirelessly print in the classroom so <laughs> students could do the first drafts digitally instead of having to wait until they got home because we didn't have a set of classroom computers, but we did have a classroom set of POM pilots. Mm. You know, I've always thought that technology was an add-on. It was nice to have and in some ways it was fun. It was innovative. It got teachers to think creatively in different ways. And I've always loved that. But I've always also thought that it wasn't essential, right? You know, smart boards weren't essential to the student learning experience. Right. And I've always felt that it's been kind of an, a nice-to-have, until now. I feel like this year and with AI, that entire conversation has shifted and that it's going to be incumbent on schools to really figure this out deeply, not just setting policies, but having guiding principles, mm-hmm. right, for what the expectations are for how we want students to use this technology. And I think that what everyone's saying around Self assessment and self reflection, and you know, that metacognition is definitely going to be one of the tools that teachers are going to need to work with kids on developing as a skill because they're going to need to think about what their role and contribution is in that learning cycle for themselves. So, mm-hmm. yes, I think that will definitely be one of the major shifts that we're going to see in what teachers and educators are asking students to do and the way that we assess. I mean, this ties to so many other areas, but yes, self-assessment will be very important. Wow. Wow. What we have our work cut out for
0: us. I'm just, I mean, you've brought home for me in a very dramatic way, you're just thinking about what a moment this is and how much work needs to be done to get to that point on the part of educators. Oof, boy. Okay, so, fi- <laughs> so finally, Michael, Evan predicts that this thing we call school will increasingly and principally become social, collaborative, and focused on health and wellness, meaning health and wellness will be valued more than what we now call quote academics.
1: What are your thoughts about this? I totally agree with that. Well, I agree with it in theory and I agree with it as a wish and a hope. But mm-hmm. again, you know, in in practice, I think that is something that is going to need to happen, right? I think that's going to be one of the byproducts of AI, right? Is going to be what schools have to focus on and what we're going to need to work on with students will definitely be in around health and well-being for Mm. sure. Mm -hmm. We're going to need to think deeply about how we build that into curriculum. I think there's a larger conversation happening now, especially in the United States around, you know, what the role of school is Mm. and whether school should be focused on that. I think there's no question that schools need to be focused on that. I just wonder if it's how difficult this is, it's going to be. I think a lot of schools already do that, but being really explicit about what role schools have in that area and the ways that we go about doing this are going to increase for sure. So yeah, I think Mm. he's right on.
0: Yeah. It's just, it's, it's super amazing to me to think about, I mean, yes, you're right. I agree with you that many, many schools are doing some of this work, but are they doing it really well? that's kind of the question on my mind and that's going to be the work ahead is trying to figure out how to do that well in some ways it kind of goes back Michael to what we were talking about you know to be a chemist or be a historian or to be anything how can schools be the place where health and wellness is what is done right for students and it's just that to be continued we'll see how this you know, plays out. But I, I love the fact that GOA is really thinking about this deeply, that you're thinking about it, all of you are, and that you're you're leading forward with that. So that's great. Okay. So we're gonna shift now to GOA, Michael. And so listeners, if you want to know more about the Global Online Academy, spend some time at its website, which is globalonlineacademy.org. So my intent today is to briefly dig deep into a couple of concepts associated with GOA. So before we do that, Michael, I wonder if you could give us an update on the current status of GOA, what it is, what it does, and what it values by describing what it means to be one of your hundred plus member schools in 2023. And I'll just give this a slight twist, given I am based in Hawaii, Michael, briefly. What does it mean for, for example, Tiny Parker School on Hawaii Island or the giant Punahou School on Oahu, for example, to be members of the GOA here in 2023?
1: Talking about and thinking about this a lot, especially post-pandemic, right? What does online mean to schools? And I think one of the things that we're really clear about is that GOA, despite our name being Global Online Academy, was never really about online, right? Yeah. You know, I think back to the time when we were first launching 12 years ago. And I think back to... We had invited a group of schools out to Seattle to talk about what this could be. And in preparation for that, I pulled together a group of Lakeside teachers because I was employed at Lakeside at the time. Mm. And the goal was to develop sample units so that we could show the people who were coming what it was we were talking about, right? Because back then, nobody had any idea what this could look like or what it could be. Yeah. And so I pulled together this working group of five educators and they were amazing. I mean, these each one of these teachers was just incredible, incredible, an incredible teacher. And the first meeting we talked about, all right, great, so we're going to, let's, talk about what this needs to look like and what the goals are. We'll come back next week and we're going to share some of what it was that we we did. And the goal was that we were going to start to, you know, translate some of what we did in the classroom into an online environment. Mm. And so we came back a week or two later, we blinked at each other. <laughs> Basically, what everyone had discovered was that's not going to work. Mm. And what we needed to do was rethink what it was that we wanted to do online, but it was not going to be transferring what we did in the classroom into an online space. Mm, Okay. So we started to move ahead from that, which was great. So let's rethink it. Let's reimagine what some of these lessons could look like. And so that is when things got really exciting. Mm. And so at the end of this, one of the, he was the head of the English department and he had canceled his class for two weeks and did his unit. He said, let's see how this thing works. And at the end of it, he said, those were... This guy had been, you know, his PhD had been teaching for, I think, 25 years at the time. And he said, those were the most democratized discussions I've ever had in my career teaching. Wow! And I looked up, I was like, wow, that is quite a statement coming from you. Mm-hmm. And then I had another teacher who was a science teacher who had this assignment on photosynthesis where students created presentations. And he asked himself, "Like, why do I have all the kids present? Like when he thought about what that looked like online, it didn't make sense for everyone to present the same, like mm. a different version of the same thing. And so he, he flipped it. He gave them an outline of a completed presentation and he asked the students, how would you narrate this as mm. a demonstration of concepts? And so he turned what usually was a deductive presentation of, you know, what is photosynthesis into an inductive one, right? Here are the answers. What are the questions? Ah, And these changes really informed everything that we set out to, to do at GOA from the very beginning. It has always been about thinking differently and deeply about teaching and learning. And so I think to be clearer about what it was or what it is that we do with schools, it's being a bridge between these foundational principles of strong pedagogy and modern emerging technologies and how those come together in really impactful learning experiences for students. Mm. And so... You know, that really informs the way that we design our student programs, which are very much like passion-based classes for students to explore different topics that are of interest that they probably can't find at their school. We have a catalog of 64 classes. Again, informed from the beginning, schools didn't want or need us to do core classes. They didn't need algebra. They didn't need, you know, English 10 They wanted medical problem solving. They Mm. wanted bioethics. They wanted, you know, linear algebra. They wanted all these other things, as did students. And so, you know, that's what schools engage with us about is expanding Mm. the opportunities for their kids in global classrooms that are competency-based. So they're practicing and learning new skills that we know are not regularly practiced in on-campus classrooms. And again, we also believe kids should be on campus. We don't want kids just learning online. Like mm. we should be in person in hallways, on the fields, in the cafeteria, but they need this too. And so it's very much designed as a supplemental program. Mm. And then we use it as a lab tool to inform professional learning that teachers can engage with to really practice new applications of good ideas around, you know, pedagogy. Mm. So competency-based learning, rethinking time, rethinking place. Now we're doing a lot of work around AI as well.
0: Mm. So that's a perfect segue, Michael. Before we go to our second break, I want to dig just a little bit deeper into the catalog itself. In one of your blogs about the 2025 vision for GOA, you referenced a slate of GOA courses, which you just mentioned a second ago, and you called the courses passion-based. And that got my attention. So I clicked on the hyperlink and was instantly transported into a magical wonderland of GOA course offerings that seemed to go on for days. So today, I want to focus on one course as a way of understanding all these course offerings and why you call them passion-based. So, Michael, I have a deep emotional and historical hatred of algebra. I lost (laughs) huge chunks of my life to this stupidly irrelevant element of math. And so when I was in your catalog of passion courses, I immediately locked into your course on algebra. And long story short, I came away just like thrilled at what I saw and eager to go back to school and take this course, which is really saying something, right? So what is this algebra course? How does it exemplify relevant learning? And how are your list of competencies woven into not only this algebra course, but all course offerings?
1: There are a lot of kids. They love algebra. Like they want, all they want is to do more math classes, (laughs) right?
0: (laughs) That's a testament. That's the gold standard. I love it. Yeah.
1: I love these kids. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the thing, right? There's different topics that light everybody's fire in, in a different way. So I think one of the things that I would highlight is, and this came up too before in what we were talking about, you know, even around health and wellness. And I think that the importance of competency-based learning, and I would tie it to schools even thinking about how we bring in health and wellness into our programs, at the core of it to me is the intentionality and deliberateness, Mm. right? Where learning isn't accidental, Everything is designed purposefully and naming those things in order that you can measure them, I think is really, really important. So you know, whether it's, it, again, I go back to what we were talking about around well-being, but instead of just saying that we're going to be doing this, well, what does that look like? Right. And what are the outcomes that we want to measure? And mm-hmm. so that to me is what is so exciting about competency-based learning is that It creates or it asks teachers to be really deliberate and intentional. And so, you know, at GOA, we have a set of core competencies, and then we have competencies that are defined by teachers in each class, very much in the way that we were talking earlier about thinking like A, right? So what are the competencies around thinking like a mathematician when it comes to linear algebra? We love that. That's core and essential. So everything is tied to competencies. Every question is tied to competencies. Every assignment, every assessment, everything is coming back in our classes to either a course competency or a GOA competency. Mm. And so you can see that even in that syllabus that you found online that's on our website. We, we put all of our syllabi up and so you can really see them. Yeah. And we ask, this even goes back to what we were talking about earlier around self-reflection. We ask students to reflect on which competencies they practiced and demonstrated so that they're aware of it and they can have that metacognition moment of understanding that they were using this mm. in the work that they were doing in this class. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think one of the really important things here, Michael, is that when i when I dug into the algebra course, I went in with the attitude like, yeah, yeah, what what could possibly happen in this course that would get me even remotely <laughs> excited about something that I hate? And almost immediately, I saw that the that the point of the course was actually to analyze. Social media interactions, if you will. In other words, using algebra to analyze what that great documentary, The Social Dilemma, talks about in terms of how people interact with social media and all that. And I was like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. Like, that's what would have made it relevant. And that's what got me excited. Right away, it was that relevancy. and I love that. Yeah, and, and, and as I was poking through all of the other courses, it was the same. Every single one seemed to have that something that the students were going to lock into and work on that was relevant to their world. And it sounds like that's very intentional and purposeful, right?
1: Very much so. I mean, rele- learning has to be relevant. It has to be meaningful, Students need to connect to it and be engaged with it. And to do that, that should be the holy grail of, of every classroom and every unit that we're studying is helping students connect with the material. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So hey everyone, we are speaking with Michael Nachbar, the executive director of the Global Online Academy. Stay with us, we'll be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unr. ULR.com. Mahalo.
1: Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the
0: Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nover as they share their own
1: experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education, from engaging teaching techniques. To the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn
0: with the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Hey everyone, we are back with Michael Nockbar, Executive Director of the Global Online Academy, a global consortium of independent public and charter schools that provides classes for students, professional development for teachers. And an international network of peers for school communities. So, Michael, in my first viewing of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed back in 2015, I was introduced to the term public exhibitions of learning. And since then, over more than a hundred episodes of this podcast and a ton of what school could be work, both here in Hawaii and, and nationally, I have heard this concept expressed in other ways as in One Stone Lab Schools disruption day or Gimnasio La Cabos's public displays of advancement or seeks public defenses of learning and a GOA you call it the catalyst exhibition so what is it what is the core philosophy behind it in terms of assessing for deeper learning and how was Warren Berger's book, A More Beautiful Question, an inspiration for this concept in terms of helping to determine how it works in a global online context?
1: Yes, I love our Catalyst exhibition. I mean, the history of it is kind of interesting and funny just because what we found during our second semester was that there were very few weeks where students were all on campus or at school or you know engaged not on vacation and so we wanted to create a project that arched over the entire semester that students could participate in mm. and that eventually grew into something that we now do in all of our terms and all of our classes and it also ties into that public exhibition of learning very much in the vein in, of Ron Berger's and ethic of excellence, which yes. is another. The two burgers really inform the catalyst been, right. Ron's an ethic of excellence, and Warren's a more beautiful question. Right, and the, the ethic of excellence is really definitely that audience effect that of publishing something for a larger audience and the way that students engage in those opportunities to demonstrate their understanding is so rich and important. And so that's part of it because when students participate in our Catalyst exhibition, they're exploring a beautiful question on their own through Mm. the lens of the course that they're in. And when it really hits the bullseye is when they are applying that to a local challenge through that global lens, Mm. right? So they're thinking about something that is impacting their area, where they're from, through the lens of what it is that they're learning in this course, and then framing a question around it. And all of our classes do this. So even linear algebra participates in the Catalyst exhibition, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. I'm looking at some of the projects that students are working on in that class. You know, how can linear algebra be applied to medical imaging Wow. Or in computer graphics, how can linear transformations and matrices be used to create realistic animations in video games? How do linear transformations improve machine learning technology in the context of neural networks? Like these are, and then it goes on. I mean, of from what student, right? Yes. Mm. What students are doing in other classes? It's just amazing the way that they're thinking about and applying mm-hmm. their own experience. Experiences to what it is that they're studying.
0: So you you chose the word catalyst, I'm sure, very intentionally. Why catalyst? What, Michael, is being catalyzed?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I and mean, We can work backwards, right? So I think we've had some students take what they're learning and, and take their catalyst exhibition and apply it to their schools and communities. So we had a student in a school in Beijing who did his catalyst exhibition on recycling programs launch a recycling program at his school and then take that and launch a recycling program in his neighborhood mm. so that to me is you know one of the ways that a question that students are exploring can be a catalyst mm. and the other is igniting their interests and their passions so in a relevant meaningful way and them driving that learning experience is very important to us. And so I think mm. that agency is being catalyzed through these exhibitions of learning. Wow.
0: Wow. I'm sitting here in my little studio in Honolulu, just smiling from ear to ear, Michael. One quick follow up question that's generated by this smile I have on my face What happens to kids when they go through one or more? of these Catalyst exhibitions. Like, how are the social and emotional dynamics different from, say, an old-style science fair with kids standing in front of poster boards kind of talking about what they did? What's the real difference there?
1: I don't know if there is a difference. I think one of the things that they're, I mean, just based on the way that we do it, since it's asynchronous and it leverages, you know, technology platforms, One of the things that's happening is students are getting feedback, not just from the people who are standing in front of them, which is amazing, right? Like those experiences of explaining your topic to a crowd, you are practicing other skills Mm. right, that are really important and getting feedback in the moment. Even being a listener in that moment is an important experience. When you've just absorbed this presentation, what are your follow-up questions We can talk more about that and the importance of, you know, question asking in general. But in this context, students are able to, you know, make connections. So, So they're getting feedback from their peers on their projects in their class, but then also outside of it. A lot of these students are getting recognized by their schools who have not seen projects like this before. And so it's very exciting to them to have an opportunity to share a project that they're that a student is doing in this, you know, in GOA with their larger population and community. And we love all of that. Mm-hmm. It's a catalyzes conversations, right? Connections.
0: Right. And building relationships amongst learners, teachers as learners, students as learners, and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. This whole Catalyst exhibition thing, Michael, just like... I just love every part of it. And when you connect it with the course catalog and everything that students are involved in, I see it as some sort of magic, some sort of voodoo magic that's going on with GOA.
1: I love your enthusiasm. I feel the same way. I think the Catalyst exhibition, we have high hopes and plans for where we could take this Mm. and what it could be and way it could bring students together from around the world to explore you know, these topics in more depth. I'm just going through, I'm like perusing the different presentations and each topic, every question is more fascinating than the next. And to build on that and really, you know, ignite kids' interest in these different areas so that they can carry on beyond the class would be really important and meaningful to us.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, Michael. And, and in fact, all of this work that I did to prepare for today caused me to go back and start to read Warren Berger's A More Beautiful Question a second time. And it's even more beautiful the second time than it is the first time, <laughs> because it was coming in the context of, you know, the Catalyst exhibition. So that's great. Okay, so a couple more questions before we bring this awesome conversation to a close. So, Michael, let's come full circle here at the end of this little more than an hour, you provided me with an absolutely fascinating slide deck created by Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix. And this 125 slide deck provides a deep look into the internal culture of Netflix and the specific values the company holds and thrives on. Um, And so slide 80 provides the following quote from The Little Prince. And I quote, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea, end quote. So, Michael, in what ways is the spirit of this, quote, part of the DNA of the Global Online Academy? What is the, quote, sort of suggesting to us educators here in the summer of 2023?
1: I mean, as an organization, yeah, it's funny when we started g o a we asked everybody to be very much a generalist in working on a lot of different things, which is amazing because it gave people a chance to you know work on professional learning and support teachers. There was actually even very much a desire to not pigeonhole people in certain roles or with certain tasks, right right so you know, person on my team who is very adept with technology, that he shouldn't be the tech guy. And, you know, as we grew and as as our programs expanded, what we realized was that a lot of people had these really specific superpowers, these talents that we should be tapping into. Mm. You know, that guy was really good at technology and systems development. And so maybe he should be concentrating on that. And again, I think it aligns to the way that we approach the work that we do with students, which is igniting passions. And so I think we try to create opportunities for people, one, to really flex their superpowers. What is it that you're really great at? And where within the organization can we let you apply those skills and interests? Mm-hmm. And then two, you know, what are we not doing that you're interested in you know, leading and opportunities for people to, to do that work too. And I think that definitely aligns with that deck and the quote that you just read, right? Which is, we're doing classes, sure. And also we're, you know, working with educators. And there's a lot of those things, but the why we're doing it, I think why is because we all believe that school can be better, learning can be different for kids. And it doesn't need to be the way that we did it, just because that's the way that we did it. And creating opportunities within the team for people to you know, do work that aims for that greater mission, I think is what's really exciting about being part mm. of an organization like GOA. Yeah,
0: that's awesome, Michael. I, I sort of took the yearn for the vast and endless sea to mean, actually, I took it back to the two burgers, to the ethic of excellence and a more beautiful question, because to me, that's what ignites the passions in me and why I got so excited as I was working through this prep for today and your course catalog and your your exhibitions and everything about GOA it just all sort of comes back to that feeling that you get when you are tapping into a more beautiful question and that you are progressing towards an ethic of excellence. And there's something about that, yes, I'm an education geek, but I got really fired up about it, you know? And so I've I've worked at a number of jobs and I just, it, that deck that you provided me, and I know you're really studying it intently, Just really got me thinking about the work that I've done and the various careers that I've had and what sort of work environments that I'm in and what sort of companies I've worked for. So, anyway, I'm kind of rambling, but hoof boy, thank you for providing that for me.
1: It's a great deck. It is, it's amazing. Yeah. And every time I look through it, there's something else that I see, but yeah, and things that I disagree with. So, it's not all gospel, but it is definitely good fodder for thinking deeply about the work we do. Yep, absolutely.
0: Okay, so Michael, I love to end episodes by having my guests shout out to a giant upon whose shoulders they stand. So you mentioned, besides your wife, three giants, three school heads who have had an outsized influence on your life. Eve Klieger, Anne Stavney, and Bernie Nell. So, Michael, what ties all three of these giants in your life together? What is the three-in-one distillation that lives in your metaphorical backpack as you head to work and to life
1: each day? Mm, That's fun to think about. I would say opportunity, right? Each Mm. one of them gave me an opportunity to do something that i probably wasn't ready for <laughs> but was eager to try and they let me mm. each one of them let me try and i love them for that and those were the things that helped me grow not just professionally but personally and shape me as you know an educator as a leader as a person it all comes down to you know they let me try stuff mm. and i'm deeply thankful and grateful for that.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine. And that's awesome, Michael. We, we can dedicate this episode to Eve, Anne, and Bernie and thank them for trusting you to try things. And that's really what we're all about as educators, hopefully, is when we work with students, with young learners, that it's all about giving them an opportunity to try something, even though they might not be ready for it in that particular moment. So that's terrific. So Michael Nakbar, thank you for being on the show today. We at What School Could Be are going to be cheering Global Online Academy on as it moves forward to help the country and the world to reimagine education. So thank you, Michael, really appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Josh. It was great to be here.
0: My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over hundred songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over hundred countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is, is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahuiho and take care.